and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the podcast where I interview a different editor each week. This week, my guest is James Roxburgh, Senior Editor at Atlantic Books. Atlantic are one of the most exciting publishers of fiction in the UK and we're going to be talking about James' list of amazing novels from around the globe, including When I Hit You, which was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, and My Sister the Serial Killer, long listed for this year's Booker Prize. But first, you join James and I discussing book fairs and the perceived death of literary fiction. As always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode and enjoy. Well, how was your London Book Fair? Is that something that plays a big part in your professional life? That's a good question. I think London Book Fair, a blast radius of about three weeks, is when editors just disappear under the floodwaters of submissions, London Book Fair and Frankfurt Book Fair in October being the moment when all agents seem to send all editors every single book they've ever considered (laughs) representing. Um, So it has been long and reasonably stressful. And as ever with a literary fiction editor, I have come back complaining about the perceived death of literary fiction um, and sort of wish I could have found a little more. Um, But at the same time, the quality of what I have found seems to be reasonably high still which means there is still life in literary fiction mm. despite what despite what will self would would, would say and what are you getting literally hundreds of submissions uh not literally hundreds um i think the way the industry tends to be going right now is a bias towards non-fiction towards commercial fiction they make more sense in the current market right now so there is necessarily going to be fewer literary fiction projects on offer um that being said if not hundreds certainly tens Mm. um and the difference in reading on submission a proposal that might run to 40 pages and reading a 80,000 word novel um, means that I might have fewer books than some of my colleagues but it is equally as time consuming. Mm. And um, what is that? Why why is it that agents decide LBF to send absolutely everything? Is it in the hopes that lots of publishers will get interested? Yeah exactly that. It's a global stage um, on which agents get to parade the authors they're hoping to sell and there's this kind of contagion effect we're talking as editors to a whole heap of editors from other territories so I might be talking to a colleague in France or a colleague in America and if I'm very enthusiastic about a novel that I've just been sent by agent A it means that that enthusiasm spreads far more quickly than it does Mm. over email on a quiet July day yeah when you might take a leisurely month to consider a manuscript. I, there are many agents out there, <laughs> Phil, who would laugh at the idea of, of me of, of, of me taking only a month. I'm, yes. I'm afraid I have a reputation for taking much longer. Well, that's um, we won't hold that against you. So, uh, Atlantic Books, can mm-hmm. you give uh, anyone who's not aware of the publisher um, what you guys do? Sure. Um, Atlantic Books is an independent publishing house, just a category difference for listeners between corporate publishing and independent publishing. In my mind, it's the kind of Star Wars difference between the good guys, the Rebel Alliance, and the bad guys being the big corporate houses. Um, (laughs) Atlantic has been in existence for 19 years. It was set up sort of a brainchild of Toby Mundy and Morgan Entrickin, who is the 
the the leader of Grove Atlantic in the States. Um, and it is a house that has long published high quality nonfiction, um, the likes of Christopher Hitchens in the past, and also high quality literary fiction. Um, it's a list that historically counts two, I think, now Nobel Prize winners, a Booker winner, some Pulitzer Prize winners. Um, and now in 2019, you find us as a house that publishes commercial fiction too under the Corvus imprint and the Allen and Unwin imprint that tends to publish a little bit of everything from sports books through to more commercially minded literary fiction. Mm. Um, personally, I work on the Atlantic Fiction List. Um, we publish perhaps 10 novels a year um, and they all would fall into the clear-cut literary fiction market. Great. Uh, how long have you been here? Forever. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings. There's a scene where they birth warrior orcs out of the ground. <laughs> and I feel like I was birthed by Toby Mondi and Ravi Merchandani under the boardroom table. I've been here for so long. And is this when they put editorial assistants into the <laughs> into the churn and out pops? That's, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what happens. Um, so, no, I've been here. I've been here for coming up. 10 years. I started a long time ago now as Ravi Merchandani, who is now a publisher of Picador. I started as his assistant and then wandered my way up through the ranks until now I run the Atlantic Fiction List. And how did you get started? Where uh, where did you first come professionally in contact with books? Ooh, good question. Uh, I, I started my career in my early 20s as a roofer which is not the obvious route into publishing. Um, I then went from roofing to deciding that I should probably parlay my very poor film degree into something notionally um, more creative than roofing. So I thought I'd sell my soul to the advertising industries where I worked for one very unhappy year. Um, and kind of the nadir of my, my working in advertising came when I was working on a shoot um, with a guy that I had a reasonable amount of friction with who turned out to be the client. Um, and we ended up having quite a fierce disagreement on set and I didn't particularly like him and he turned out to be the creative director of HarperCollins. Um, and somewhere in my very mouthy um, 24-year-old angst that I had clearly um, displayed to him, he realized that I was someone who needed a little bit of care and attention rather than being dismissed. Um, so he put a metaphorical kind of brotherly arm around me and suggested that perhaps I was in the wrong career and had I ever considered books? Um, answer, no. I sort of was aware that people must make books in the abstract, but I didn't grow up in a particularly intellectual household. We had books, but they tended to be Danielle Steele. Um, and it suddenly occurred to me that there was a whole thriving industry of folk who thought about literature and made books. Mm. Um, and so I went into HarperCollins from there on kind of like a trial internship. Um, and I think for the first week they kept an eye on me to make sure I didn't run off with the furniture. And after about a month, they decided that perhaps I'd be more, um, I would be better placed in editorial. So I went to Fourth Estate and then I just did the long slog of the internship route around mm. publishing until I eventually alighted at Atlantic and was offered a position here. Um, that long slog, which is something I advertise to all people who are getting into publishing as being something almost unavoidable. Um, some people have the good fortune to 
have their own means to be able to live and do this log in publishing. Um, others of us have to do the kind of a night job at the same time to get through it. I still think it's publishing publishing's shame that we do this to people trying to get into the industry, and I think it harms the quality of the people coming in. Um, but there we go. Hmm. And were you that... Uh that person who had never considered working in books, were you at that time a reader? Like, was, you know, was this a million miles away from you? Uh, I mean, only a million miles in as much as I lacked for wit and intelligence to join the dots. Um, right. I've always read a huge amount. I mean, if you're going to be working as an editor, um, you have to have that natural attraction to books. It can't mm. be forced. Um, so I've read, I, I always read, and my, my parents were always supportive of me reading. Um, as I said, I just didn't have that kind of curation um, mm. that moving through being a teenager might have helped guide me towards considering a career in literary fiction. You know, I would pick up, I'm incredibly well versed in women's fiction because I grew up with a mother and two sisters who would continually be reading, yeah. you know, Rachel's Holiday was one yeah. of my favorite books at 17. Yeah, I was much the same. My, my mother was a primary school teacher and they used to have a, all the teachers passed their books from side yeah. side. So when we didn't have YA in our house, we had Jodie Pickle or we mm. had um, John Grisham was my first favorite author. Um, I was far too young <laughs> to be reading <laughs> but uh, ironically one of the one of the things or it's it's a minor advantage that I like to think that I might have um, is that I have a I have a bias towards plot and character um, and I regard literary fiction as being something that should be accessible to to the majority rather than the mini minority mm. Um, so when I'm considering books, and this isn't true of all of my books, I, I do publish um, things that are fairly unapproachable and would be considered much more high literary. But when I'm thinking of books, I, I kind of have a test in my head of what would my sister read. And my sister in my head is a, a classic Waterstones buyer. She buys maybe three or four books a year. She doesn't really have a sense of where she fits on any genre scale. Mm. She doesn't kind of buy into the metrics by which we judge what readers are and where we position them in a bookshop she just goes in and she buys what's on the table yeah um and so i think quite often when i'm buying a book would, would my sister pick this up would it be approachable for her would it be accessible to her mm. um, and i think that's a useful way of sometimes thinking about publishing yeah especially literary fiction perhaps yeah i i mean the, the interesting thing about literary fiction is that i think what we're seeing recently with the success of Sally Rooney and with, say, um, that lovely French book about the murderous nanny, the name of which has escaped me, Lullaby by Lila Slimani. Mm. Um, what we're seeing there is we're seeing publishers publishing literary fiction that are about human stories and about humans being human. I mean, mm. normal people literally is about normal people yes. the clues in the title why do I think those books have really resonated this year I think it's because we're publishing books that remind people that literary fiction is 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 accessible to everyone and considers everyone as well in, mm. in what it is and how we're publishing those books um, mm. and I think that can only be a good thing I, I think I think privileging storytelling and kind of almost going back I mean we collectively as publishers I feel we're sort of losing the competition for consumers attention with Netflix mm. um, 
what's Netflix is kind of classic, almost 19th century storytelling. Um, it's storytelling about people being people, just in long form. And I think what's interesting is we're now seeing publishers realize that there is a huge market out there for books about people being people. Yeah, falling it's in interesting love. that you mentioned that 19th century storytelling, because it hadn't occurred to me before with the Netflix formula mm. of episodic, regular storytelling with a cliffhanger at the end sure. of each bit. You know, it makes a lot of sense sure. that people bought on subscription. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, this, is, this is something that someone else very smart on this podcast might completely disagree with, and, yeah. and they wouldn't be wrong, and I'm not necessarily right, but certainly it feels to me that and again this is observing through my own social background it feels to me that for a while publishing publishing became it, it became a little inward looking and was looking for, for literary fiction was was looking at at high literary fiction um, and privileging high literary fiction and possibly forgetting that literary fiction could also be a white tiger that we published in 2009 which is just really fun yeah yeah there was just almost that perception that, that you know it's the kind of milkman debate that mm. it should be uh challenging and if it's not challenging or it sells particularly well it's crossover sure. you know it's a crossover into commercial sure, exactly you know, the that. word literary is almost uh literary and selling well is almost contradictory <laughs> sometimes I mean, when you think <laughs> yeah i yeah it's it's sort of an oxymoron i i'm i'm always wary of i mean i'm sort of wary of categories in general um of what mm. literary fiction means and what commercial fiction means um but I think, yeah, I think the Milkman, the Milkman debate, which is a really neat way of kind of articulating a broader debate in yes. publishing or a broader concern in publishing, um, is is a smart way of looking at it. The Milkman is a, is a brilliant novel, and it absolutely deserves the recognition it's got. And I don't believe that we should stop supporting writers who are absolutely the avant-garde of what we're doing because it's the avant-garde that usually progresses and pushes forward literature or any art form. Um, but I also think it's useful to remember that there is a place for people who un are wanting to read more simple storytelling. Mm. And there is a, a place for straightforward storytelling. And I'm, I'm for one, incredibly glad that we're recognizing that again. Um, and, you know, maybe it's never gone away and maybe this is purely filtered through my own perspective of the world. But it feels to me we're recognizing that again. Mm. On that note... Mm. Let's move on and talk about the first of our five books for today. Sure. Um, the first one I've got in front of me is When I Hit You. Mm, which, ironically, is considered quite a tricksy modernist book to mm. get into. But it's been shortlisted for the Women's Prize, longlisted for Dylan Thomas Prize, shortlisted for the Jalik Prize, Explosive, say The Guardian. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was a book that you, certainly seemed to me, and maybe, again, it's only in my little filter of it, but it was everywhere for a little while. Yeah, it, I mean... It was, and it was a real slog to get there. I mean, this is the other side of, of the debate. It's that when you are publishing books that are particularly difficult and might put themselves under the bracket of, of experimental fiction, um, to try and get attention for that is really tough. Uh, and with Mina, we published her first novel maybe five, six years ago now, called The Gypsy Goddess, and it was so hard to get any attention for it and any recognition for it, and it felt like this could be a similar, long, sustained campaign of, of screaming into the void just to try and get someone to pay attention. Um, the difference with this book is that it would fall under the category of autofiction, um, and for those of you not 
familiar with the neologisms of publishing, autofiction just basically means fiction based on and inspired by happenings in your real life. Yeah, it's autobiography and fiction crammed together. It's, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's a much more elegant way of explaining it. This is why you're a host and I'm not. Yeah, um, it's funny. It's one of those terms that when you speak to people in publishing who work in fiction, it, it, it creeps up. But of course, when you speak to any readers, it's not a section you go into a bookshop. Sure. It's not a subcategory on Amazon, whereas uh, woodworking from the 19th century might be a second on Amazon. Um, so you think that really made a difference with that book, with this book? Um, I, I think presenting it as autofiction probably made it even more hard because really? that's once again a category that I think Waterstones are going to think, how on earth do we sell autofiction? Mm. Um but, but it but it's a it's a novel that it is explicitly about the experience of a young woman in an abusive relationship, um, and in the current social context of Me Too, and in the current climate of this huge kind of collective, I hope, cultural social reckoning that the power dynamics between men and women have long been skewed. It was a book that we felt spoke to a moment and for a moment in in some regards. So therefore. Although it comes under the Trixie heading of autofiction, the actual pitch of a book is something more urgent and something that we hoped that the press would be interested in thinking about. Mm. Um, and from my own personal perspective, I, I, I just thought it was important. I thought it was important that we heard these voices. I mean, particularly for Mina, who is a woman of color, who comes from an Indian background, who has never seen herself in any way reflected in the literature that she gets to read over in London, living in London. Mm. Um, so I thought it was an important thing to discuss, an mm. important voice to add to the growing conversation about sexual politics. Mm. And so you had guys had published Mina's previous book. What was the experience of publishing this one? Did you, you know, was it a two-book deal? I mean, you guys were involved from the very beginning. Did you get a manuscript and, you know, it was almost like it was a new arrangement altogether? Um, the previous book um, was a one-book deal, and quite often what happens with young literary writers, or certainly what I hope that Atlantic does, and it's, a, it's, it's sort of an ethos that I've learned from my former boss, Ravi, who I've mentioned many times already today, um, is that sometimes the best thing you can do for literary writers is provide a home for their career rather than a place that will publish a book yeah and i think that's where the independents excel i think mm. the indies are more interested in publishing careers rather than publishing mm. specific books that's a bias that i'm sure plenty of corporate editors would disagree with. but um with mina we published her first novel and we knew it was going to be exceptionally tough it was a postmodernist disquisition on the difficulty of writing about tragedy whilst writing a tragedy at the same time set in Tamil Nadu in 1968 during the communist uprising of farm workers. So in no way is that easy to kind of sit down and pass for The Guardian when we're trying to get them right. to review a book. Yeah, you can't get that description any shorter than you've just done. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, we talk of elevator pitches. That's kind of like a seven stories of taking the stairs pitch. Yeah, yeah. Are you hoping the elevator gets stuck for yeah, a while? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, so with Mina's first book, I think we saw the talent. That was clear on the page. Mm. She's a brilliant writer. We saw that the book itself was brilliant, but we knew it'd be tough. We bought her on a one-book deal 
but my intention was always going to be to continue publishing Mina as long as I was at Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, so when her next novel came along, which was When I Hit You, I, I before I bought it, my expectation was that I was going to because right. I wanted to show about fidelity to to what I thought was real talent. Mm. Um, sorry. And what? Uh, talk, let's talk a little bit more in depth about the manuscript itself because I think lots of uh, by book by book and editor by editor that work can be very very different. Mm. Um, sometimes you know uh, things come fully formed. Sometimes mm -hmm. they absolutely don't. What about this book? I mean, I have a bias as an editor towards things that aren't fully formed. Interesting. Um, just because I find it. I find it more interesting and also frankly I work for an independent publisher we have shallower pockets than some of the bigger publishers in town so necessarily when I'm looking at authors I'm looking for raw talent rather than finished polished article because mm. if it's the finished polished article it's going to go for Cape for three times as much as I can afford um, so the books I tend to go for for various reasons tend to be books that I feel need work editorially speaking um i edited mina's previous book so we had already established a relationship and it was a relationship based on one of dialogue i i don't believe in kind of directives and red pens with authors i don't think any anything good particularly comes of that mm -hmm. i think any editor telling you that they can solve the problem to the plot hole on page 92 <laughs> um i think should be should one should be cautious about straightforwardly taking their advice I think the author is a better person to solve the plot hole yeah. on page 82 I think our job is to say there is a plot hole here and discuss with them and draw out of them what might be the right resolution to yeah. that it's a funny experience isn't it I mean the first few books I edited for instance most of it was done over email or done over mm -hmm. track changes on Microsoft Word and I remember the first time I had a conversation with an author kind of in person about their book being completely speechless <laughs> all of my thoughts and mm -hmm. uh, uh, hopes for the book and the things that I had so succinctly put into that email <laughs> completely left you know I, I could do little more than than read the email back to them so it was like <laughs> sure. something that I really had to it was a completely different skill set almost uh, because it wasn't just considering the book but it was considering the person uh, sitting across the table from you and mm -hmm. um asking questions rather than providing answers maybe to, to it was really strange and sure. now it's something that i would certainly with fiction i would never not do it mm -hmm. um, but it was definitely a, a, a learning curve yeah i something that i think is really important that you don't necessarily glean from reading a manuscript in its roughest form is what does the author want to achieve mm. And I don't see a harm in asking an author that question straightforwardly. I mean, you, you know, as editors, I, I don't think editors should expect themselves to be able to divine everything that an author is trying to do on the page on manuscript draft one. So with Mina, we went out for lunch and I said, you know, what is it that you're hoping to achieve through this novel? And she said straight away, it's really important that this novel is not pigeonholed in that classic way that people tend to do with with female writers of this is you're only writing your life here you're right. not writing fiction or you're not inventing in the same way that by implication male writers might do mm. it's a complaint that mina has and i've heard a number of female writers 
have a, a similar complaint that there's an assumption that what women are writing is from direct experience where men are given the privilege of allowed to have an imaginative um, reach beyond their own experience. Right. So she wanted to be really clear this was fiction even if it was autofiction and not Yeah, complicated, right? But yeah. what was yeah, what was important to her is people didn't read her book and say oh, when know. that happens that must have happened to you in real life. Mm. She wanted to be able to say, it's a novel first and foremost. Yes, of course. I mean, you could make an argument that everything that a writer writes is going to be mediated through their own experiences. Therefore, all of it to a degree is autobiographical. Mm. But she wanted to have the freedom to be able to say, it's it's just a novel. It's fiction. Um, and yes, of course, my own experience goes onto the page, but not in a way that, you should use that to define me as a quote woman writer. Mm. Um, so she was really she was really clear about that from the beginning. Now, did I pick that up in the first edit? No, I, I didn't because this was something that was personal to her and something that wasn't necessarily communicated through her writing, but was so important for me as her editor to understand that that was her project. Yeah, because it's going to inform everything you do with it, like mm. down to that classic controversial cover you're going to put onto it which you know if you hadn't had that conversation you could have gone a completely different way with it yeah sure we could have we could have given it um, you know we could have tried to dress it up as autobiography yeah. or when you could I have had a photograph of her on the cover and you know yeah, and, and if exactly. you had see, sent that to her saying this is what we want to do she would have you don't get this at all well in fact um, her Indian publisher who I, I should say I think she's very pleased with her Indian publisher but they had a very specific way that they felt they could market this book and that was to have a photograph of a woman who looks fairly similar to Mina on the front of the cover and it looks like it looks like autobiography mm. and I had a conversation with Mina where she we talked through about what that meant for her understanding of what her book was and I think I, you know I mean she trusts her publisher as good authors should mm. um but I think she needed to she needed to really think about what that signaled what her Indian publishers were doing. Mm. And had they had that conversation with her, I don't know, maybe they wouldn't have gone that route. But mm. it certainly meant that it could inform how I would publish her mm. and how I would edit her. You know, I mean, I was very wary of ever saying, you've experienced some of this, you've experienced sexual trauma and abuse. Can you write more of yourself onto the page? Because I know that that wasn't what she was trying to do. Mm. Thank you. So the next book I've got to talk about is America is Not the Heart. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is uh, a very different book. But, you know, again, and I'm going to ask you at the end what makes an, a kind of Atlantic book. But, you know, it still fits in that kind of... I can see these two books beside each other and it doesn't sure. make... Uh, doesn't make doesn't uh, they don't contradict one another yeah i mean like they're both by young kick-ass women of color which yeah is, which is is you know i mean that's, that's pretty good an thing obvious, to be doing <laughs> that's 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 the obvious comparison to them they're both to a degree i guess for me the texture of them are that they let me into a world that is so far removed from mine i'm such a product of a dominant culture um i find it reasonably difficult to get all that excited about seeing myself reflected in the page you know I'm, I've lived with myself for 35 years I'm fairly bored of myself I don't mean more of it <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think and I think yeah I, I think publishing young writers who are 
introducing me to a world not pandering to me as their reader but letting me come into their world and observe mm. i think that's that's the thing that binds all of my i know you said that you were going to ask us at the end but i'm answering it now cool, that's um good. that's that's the kind of a thing that i think unites all of the books that i tend to publish mm. um, and where did this book come from did this did this too was this the first book of elaine's you published yeah so this 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 is reasonably interesting to talk about for people who might be re- vaguely interesting in editing because I actually co-edited it with an American publisher. Um, mm. So this came out on submission and it had all of the reasons why I'm instinctively attracted to certain kind of writers. Um, it is very sexy. It is very, very <coughs> smart and wise. It doesn't wear its learning heavily. Um, yet in the pages of that book, there is the wisest opinions on what it is to be human mm. um, that I've come across. And it made me cry as well. I mean, wh- what more can I say about a novel? I sat mm. down, I read it, I fell in love with the women who were falling in love. I fell in love with the people around the main character. I cried at various points because of various different reasons. It It was a book that immediately spoke to me that's mm. a dreadful phrase and so to go back to that point of you were co-editing it with an american editor right. so i'm guessing the situation was they had bought the rights to the american edition you guys had brought the rights to the uk edition and yeah. you were agreeing on an approach <laughs> sure i mean this is this is an interesting thing because quite often america likes to think of itself um or american editors often will will not think about those other territories that it might be sharing a book with right this isn't universal i've had some great experiences with american editors i've had less positive experiences with american editors but quite often you'll find that an american editor might go off and and do their edit without necessarily thinking about or consulting the british editor so i was a i've seen this happen before and i've experienced it once or twice so i was curious about how this would work because America is not the heart when it came in was was such a vast book and clearly needed a little bit of editorial work I didn't want to be buying a book that I then wouldn't have any editorial control over so Emma Patterson the agent who was then at RCW went out simultaneously um, in America and the UK and I think Laura Tisdell at Biking in America bought the book three days before I did I think I might be misremembering but about that um and yeah my my one of the things that i had to consider is is this going to be an editor i can work with what if i buy a book with an editor in the u.s who turns around and says i love it as it is what happens then so the first thing i did is i called up laura tisdell and i bought the book first because i believed in the talent of the author i called up laura tisdell and i said hey i'm your opposite number on the other side of the atlantic I think this writer is extraordinary. I do have some editorial comments. How do you want to do this? How do we how do we work collaboratively? How do we work with a dialogue and not feel that one or other is pushing the book in a way that the other doesn't want? Um, and I was incredibly lucky to have a partner in Laura. Um, it felt like a genuine partnership. We both read, we both wrote down notes, we sent them to each other, we compared our notes, and then we presented a united front to the author. Mm. Um, it's not helpful when two editors are having two different visions for a book. No. Um, and you mentioned just briefly, while you're on the subject of the agent in that instance, do you get most of your books from agents? 
all of your books from agents? Pretty much. I have literally in two months' time I'm I'm publishing a book which I approached a writer. Right. Rather than an agent approached me. Um, the key thing to note there is that it's a non-fiction project. It's, mm. it's and also that you approach them rather than an on-agent and author approaching you. Yeah, I, I, for, for those of you listening who are writers um, without agents, it is exceptionally difficult, nigh on impossible, to get taken seriously in a publishing house. Um, all of us have, we tend to have a line, which is we do not read unsolicited manuscripts. And by unsolicited, we mean those of you who send them in from home and not through an agent. And that's simply because we just don't have the time. Um, agents act as a frontline filter. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good agent will do their job exceptionally well, which is to make sure that your writing would be going to the right editor for it yeah. rather than just send it to literally everybody and just hope for the best yeah someone gave me a good piece of advice is that you're looking for someone to make it the best they can be before it goes out rather than just packaging it up sure absolutely um, yeah no I, I believe in, in publishing being a collaborative medium I believe that yeah. agents and editors add value to a book and add value to a publishing experience for a writer mm. um, so no I I, I get sent things in the post um sometimes they're mad there was a man who sent us hair clips for a while <coughs> interesting excuse me um <laughs> and I, I i just don't really have the time to engage mm. um so we tend not to not to read great i think on that note we might move on and talk about house of stone sure um which has this great great cover on it um as well as some really quite extraordinary praise um, immediately jumping out of me here has got easily the best debut I've read this year. Yeah, it's it, it is a very fine cover, and and that is again part of being published by a publishing house is you're not being published just by an editor. You're being published by a whole village of people, mm. and our editorial uh, our artwork worked that up, and it is really fucking creepy, but kind of brilliant for the content of the book. Um, Novoyu is a sort of a slow burn success story and this is something you find a lot with literary fiction we published her last year in the summer and my god we had to fight to get her reviewed anywhere um why that is i don't know um it is a story of someone who grew up in zimbabwe um it is the story of a black zimbabwean um and i I struggle or we have struggled to get anyone to be interested in that as a story and I think that's a more interesting story than the host of kind of white African writers who are uh, purporting to to show a view of Africa I mean they do they show their view but there's a whole bunch of people there who don't share that view and I think it's it's I think Novoyu is is giving a perspective of Africa which is fascinating authoritative smart philosophical and i thought this book was great and then we really struggled to get anybody to review it um i don't know how much it was seen as two quotes zimbabwean i don't know um that can be lots of conspiracy theories that keep me awake at night um but i kind of believe that quality will will out and this was a book that felt that it this was a book that felt that it it was quality that eventually outed um we got a Guardian review maybe six weeks after publication which was a rave which was incredibly pleasing and then everything went quiet 
And then it was published in America about 10 months after we published in the UK, which is really rare. Usually Americans will go before the UK or usually will publish um, at the same time. But for long, not particularly exciting reasons of editors leaving various houses, this one got postponed in the US. And then about a month ago, it got the most extraordinary New York Times review. Um, the kind of review that you dream of getting for your books. And then three weeks after that, it was longlisted for the Folio Prize. And it just feels that... And then it was longlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. And it won a smaller award called the Stanford Awards. Um, and it just felt that this was this was a book that finally got the recognition it deserved. It just felt like a really long battle to get mm. there. Um, and this book and a couple of the other ones we've spoken about, we've mentioned the importance of reviewing mm. and also indeed of prizes. Um, I think even especially maybe in traditional, or sorry, in, in uh, literary fiction, mm-hmm. they are particularly important. Is that your is that your view on them? Yeah, I, I think a literary novel, a literary novel that doesn't get the recognition of the standard um, dominant review outlets be that the kind of the, the Dead Tree Press, um, the Times franchise, Guardian, Telegraph, and maybe Daily Mail, and that shrink, you know, they're ever shrinking, you know, the indie's now sort of gone. Um, I think books that don't get that attention really struggle, because if you're a Waterstones buyer looking at what stock and what which books you should be selling... You're looking at those metrics that suggest which books you should pay attention to. And what metrics do you have? Well, you've got reviews and you've got prizes. And outside of that, if your book doesn't get external validation, what makes Waterstones think there's a book we should be backing? Mm -hmm. There's a book we should buy 700 copies of rather than 70 copies of. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think with literary fiction, you need... You need that review coverage, mm. um, and I'm, I'm entirely. I, I, if, if I sounded a little bit scathing towards the press, I'm not at all. I'm entirely sympathetic to those literary editors out there who are literally receiving three mailbags of debut novels every week, mm-hmm. um, and there just isn't the space. My, I guess, my frustration is not directed at them. It's directed at just a general shrinking culture, yeah. where we no longer value criticism and mm. we no longer give review space like we might have done 10 years ago and although i mean lots of people i guess will be familiar with various literary prizes and that they have their own character mm. you know you might say that that is a booker book or a goldsmith book sure. slightly different or even a costa book or well, um what is there anything that you think makes a book reviewable maybe that's an impossible question or maybe one for the publicist but are you going back to that thing we talked about with Mina, for instance, mm. and that um, elevator pitch? Is it is it that? Is it really finding something that you can boil down and something that really hang your hat on? Yeah, I, I think that's probably a smart observation. Um, we talk about what's the narrative behind the narrative, yeah. um, by which I mean when we're looking at a book to acquire for the list, is it a good book? Yes or no? And what can we say about that book? that might get the press interested in it. Right, so this isn't a synopsis, as in this happens and this happens and this happens. Mm-hmm. It is more saying, James has worked in publishing for 10 years, although he used to be a roofer, and he's written this incredible... Sure, ex- exactly that. So, you know, I'm currently... Um, I'm, I'm currently... By the time this airs, I will have offered on a book written by a young guy 
who grew up in a reasonably violent milieu on a Neesden housing estate. Um, now, the book in, in its own terms is exceptional, but also the fact that he lived that life, and this is authentic. This isn't an act of empathetic imagination where a writer is imagining what it's like to grow up in that world and to participate in acts of sometimes astonishing violence. Mm. The fact that he lived that life is something that makes it easier to pitch when we go knocking on the door of a Sunday Times and say, will you review our book? It's easier to say, okay, this is a book and it's great on its own terms, but also there's a story there about the author that you might be able to use. I mean, our job is to try and help literary editors at the press. It's to try and help guide them towards things that they can put in the pages of their paper that people are actually will respond to and that means sometimes playing the kind of the game of what currently is a cultural meme Mm, Um, mm. there are a lot of books right now that I'm seeing that explicitly engage with me too Mm. Um, on the one hand I think that's that's very good it's very important that we continue doing that and not let this kind of be lost to just a moment in time but we continually do this but of course, it's it's a cultural meme right now, and it's one that helps us pitch books to the press. You yeah, know, um, Christina Rupani, a cat person, it's a great short story, but it struck a chord. It resonated in a in a moment, so it becomes easier to say to the press, "You should yeah. think about this." It's that thing of slightly stealing from a different, <laughs> a different medium. Of you don't, you can't just be a genius. You need the scene around you, that kind of Brian Eno, David Bowie yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, you need a moment. Sure. Um, but it also kind of, I mean, it just struck me while you were speaking there that that does to some extent help us explain this kind of rise of autofiction um, to a degree in the sense that it's not just a trend in writing but it is making all of the places where books might get attention making their job easier to cover it sure and also I mean you can you can also look at it as what it is we're looking for now when we engage with the world around us and why do we spend horrific amounts of time on social media looking at the interior of people's lives while well, mm. is Carlo Vekanalsgaard a writer that you know half of London seems to have read it's because they're putting their lives up in all of their banality and mm. we're interested in banality and mm. we're interested in kind of the strange fine texture of other people's lives um, so of course that kind of transmutes into the art that writers are creating they're surrounded by this constant obsession with with the fine grain of what it is that people are doing with their lives and therefore writing what you know mm. and putting your own kind of world slash banality into that seems like an obvious choice yeah. um, we're more interested in authors as entities separate from the book now, we're more interested in kind of almost author as celebrity, I don't think it's quite got to that point but you know I mean we talk about authors being quote marketable which means are they going to be able to stand up and talk in front of a crowd of people and charm them, impress them, interest them, engage them? Mm. Are they young with an interesting story? And, you know, is it like a really hot dude who <laughs> is going to make half the audience swoon? We talk about that. And that's, you know, it'd be, it, would, it would be disingenuous to pretend we don't consider the author's yeah. story um, when we're trying to publish books. I mean, that's not everything, of course. Um, you know, but that that is something that that feeds into discussions in publishing houses across London, mm-hmm. and also further because you know good publishing houses are no longer centralised in London, which mm. is only a good thing. 
Um, great. The next book I've got to talk about again is, I mean, speaking of books that were everywhere, I mean, I think I came into work the other day and three of my colleagues were reading this, <laughs> which is My Sister, the Serial Killer. Mm. And if you're going to get a more uh, headline-y <laughs> title than that this year, then yeah, I'll take I, my hat off to you. Um, and the and that is a pretty good elevator pitch of what the book is also yeah, about. There we go. I mean, the title literally was, it's a fucking gift. I got that. <laughs> Um, I got that from Claire Alexander, who I think is one of the most indefatigable agents out there. Um, I just think she's got such an incredible eye and a hunger to keep finding these these young authors from you know unexpected places. Claire found Oyen judging a short story prize in Nigeria. I mean, you know, I, I take my hat off to those agents who are prepared to go looking. Mm. Um, a book comes in called My Sister, the Serial Killer. I, I kind of thought, well, I don't need to read it. It's, yeah. it's just such a brilliant pitch. But I'm opening that email. You yeah, know, like exactly. That is so that's not going page. to the bottom of my no. bottom of my reading pile. It's going right to the top. Um, and this is this is what we we're talking about earlier. This was about how we how we kind of talk and think about what literary fiction is, and why I'm sort of hesitant as of it as a category. Um, my sister, the serial killer, is incredibly smart, but also it's just entertaining first and mm. foremost one of the early reviews in the New York Times um, we co-published it with Doubleday in the States and one of the early reviews pointed out that quite often literary fiction misses one of the first and central imperatives of art which is just to entertain yes um, I was watching I think it was and I'm going to get my I'm going to mix up some of my American writers here but I think it was someone like Ben Lerner in conversation mm. with someone like George Saunders <laughs> not those two people entirely but they're talking about the something like so again this might be the wrong book entirely the Penguin book of the American short story or sure. some, which one of them had edited and again that was the introduction of we the f- writing is a form of entertainment or reading rather mm-hmm. maybe is a form of entertainment and that, that too often is forgotten in uh, especially things that are literary perhaps sure and and I felt I, I felt that principle um, which was was articulated in the review I've just mentioned that writing should be should be entertaining as well mm. you know I mean sure there are books that you read and they feel like you know Moby Dick transcendental board boredom um you muscle through it you feel good afterwards it's like a workout you know you don't want to go on a five mile run but after you've done it you think okay that i got something from that but not not all literary fiction in quotes should be that there Mm. is a place for literary fiction just to be fun and there is a place for it not to wear not to try and show that it's smart but just to be a reflection of the world around it and mm. my sister of a serial killer does that it's 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 fun first and foremost it's a reflection of a world and it's very smart and very witty in the way that it does that and you'll hear some people kind of relegate it to commercial fiction um it's it's just fiction it's just really good fiction yeah yeah um, um, and before we move on to the fifth book, I just want to reflect slightly on the four we've spoken about before. We've got, like, I think four female authors, mm. uh, four f- authors of colour, uh, and four very inter- very international spread sure. we've got here. Is that a conscious thing that's going on in your head or with Atlantic? Or is it just that thing that, you, that seems to speak to you, which is people or maybe who've lived interesting lives or certainly can imagine inter- different lives than your own? Sure. Um... Oof, good question. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how much I thought about this in terms of strategy. Should should I be publishing young women of color? That's mm. certainly not 
something that has ever occurred to me as as a way to run a list. Um, I guess I'm really hesitant to kind of make moral projects of of my publishing. I'm you know I I do believe in that whole gatekeeper argument that those of us who are privileged enough to be in the role that we're in should remember that 90% of us are from a dominant culture and we shouldn't be forgetting that there are many people who aren't from the dominant culture who still should be seeing their lives reflected in the pages of a work that Mm. they're reading. Mm. There are still authors who are writing brilliant things and deserve to be considered irrespective of whether they are, you know, white, middle class and male and age 50, which is what a lot of readers are. Mm. Um, So I guess I'm, I'm aware of that, but I no, it's a kind of a. It's not an act of. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a white straight dude, so <laughs> you know, I I don't I don't want to I, I don't want to kind of you know be sententious and say it's important we do this and I do this for you know the good of of our collective moral culture. I mm. I don't I I do it because these are the books that I read and fell for. I mean, mm. it, it really is as simple as that. And maybe that's because I'm more interested in the world beyond the one that I recognize. But that's the you know that what have all these books got in common? I just thought they're fucking good. I just thought they're really good. <laughs> There's no better reason than that. And then the last book we're going to talk about is Kill Redacted by Anthony Good. Um, and yeah, it's a bit, I suppose it is a bit different than the other books we've talked about. Do you, or do you? Uh, what do you think? Uh, I mean, it's different in as much as he's a London-based writer writing a fairly london novel we sort of when when i sat down two years ago um to think about what atlantic fiction wanted to do what our mission statement was um i wanted to be publishing writers who i considered as bold in what it was that they were doing um that was a point of difference for me writers who were prepared to take risks in the body of their work whether that is emotional risks, whether they are political risks, but just writers who are prepared, or whether they're, you know, whether whether they're formal risks, um, but writers who are prepared to to do something different and be brave enough to do that. They're the writers that interested me. I, we also lean heavily on the adjective global because you know that's a reflection of what I'm interested in. Literature is a, a kind of a global phenomenon, not a, not a strictly British or English language phenomenon. Um, so. With Kill, he might not qualify under the global adjective. I think he grew up in Archway. Um, But he certainly qualifies under the bold adjective. He's written a novel which is a sort of holding to account of power. Um, It's about a guy who has lost his wife in a terrorist incident. And he wants and needs someone to blame. He believes in retributive justice, which is the justice system under which we all live. Um, And he doesn't blame the people who blew themselves up next to his wife. He blames the people whose policies and whose rhetoric put everything into motion that leads to someone blowing themselves up. So he's looking, in terms of moral philosophy, he's looking at the ultimate cause rather than the proximate cause. And he alights on a politician who is heavily redacted throughout the book, A, partly because Anthony wrote it with a politician in mind, and we can't really publish a book in which a man 
stalks, hunts down and murders an actual politician. Um, and B, that redaction becomes a kind of an empty vessel for anybody to put any name of any person in power. Mm, um, it's kind of the, it's it's like a mask with a question mark on sure, it. That's you know, exactly. Everyone slightly projects. Sure, that's exactly it. Um, and yeah, and what I liked about this is it burrows from the formal kind of impishness of, say, um, B.S. Johnson. Mm. Um, it kind of reads as a collection of um, letters, as a collection of scraps of, of diary. Um, so I guess that's what qualifies it to me as bold, both of both its formal um, it, it's, its formal arrangement and also its willingness to kind of speak truth to power and to write provocatively about the world in, in which we live and I think that's vital for young authors to do I kind of celebrate when writers are willing to kind of write provocatively about about people and hold them to account and say you know what there were people in government who ignored a million people marching through the streets of London saying let's not go to war with Iraq and mm. they did it and why did they do it Do it because is it because they believed that they were doing some kind of good to the world or did they do it because of geopolitical reasons and mm. we know the answer to that and you know am I sympathetic to them being called out in literature you know I think they should be and I'm glad that there are authors out there willing to do that and I guess that's the boldness that I liked about Kill redacted thank you um, and to end now we've talked about lots of books you have published but I'm going to ask you to swap hats for a minute take off your editor's hat and perhaps put on a reader's hat is there anything you've come across as a reader um, of recent times that you really wished you'd gotten to publish mm, yeah good question um You've already warned me I'm not allowed to say Sally Rooney because everybody does. Which yeah, would probably well, be you certainly are. I'm, I'm never going to get sick of talking about that. But. <laughs> um, I guess I mentioned earlier Leila Slamani, um, the uh, lullaby, which I thought was just a really, really good piece of interesting storytelling. And I celebrate its success because I think it's indicative of a publishing industry who are opening up to books just being good storytelling. Mm. Um, so, yes, I would happily have published that um i thought milkman was astonishingly good um and i'm literally only picking faber books so <laughs> let me let me see if i can range well don't worry i've spoken to louisa joiner who was the editor of Milkman already <laughs> yeah, so that was yeah. a nice segue into <laughs> yeah well i hope she mentioned all of my books when she was she was listing the ones that she 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 wished she had published um i guess i mean I I read something something that happens when you're an editor because you're reading just so much is you begin to read you have two different modes of reading actually mm. you have three you have a mode of reading that you reserve for your submission pile which is very quick you have to be quick because you've got a lot to read um and you're reading it to get a sense and flavor of language first and narrative second and you know, if I read 20% and put it down, I turn it down. If I found I've read 100%, then I'm interested in buying the book. So that's one mode of reading. Second mode of reading is when you read as a structural editor, when you're actually going through and really engaging on a line-by-line -line basis for your line notes, but also you're really thinking and you are um, thinking critically about the book and pushing at the at the frailties in the text and working out how you and the author Yeah, it's might. an interesting way to read that, is... is 
um, when you pick up a book, like a published mm. book, you give it put a lot of trust in it. You know, you you let it, you take its assumptions sometimes on Facebook. You don't push in that same way that you're describing there. Sure, and and what I always still do is I acquire books. And I say in-house, oh, I think it was it's, it's great. It doesn't need a lot of work. And then I sit down and edit it. And then 15 pages of notes later, yeah. um, I realize, oh, maybe it needed more work than I thought it did. And that, mm. that's a reflection of those two modes. Mm. Um, one is is you're reading almost instinctively, intuitively. You're, you're trying to get a feel for the book. And the second mode is you're reading critically. Mm. Um, you're reading intellectually. You're, you're trying to figure out how you, you know, you're conscious you're consciously engaging with the book on every yeah. every sentence. And then your third type would be the middle of those two? No, my third type is just kind of reading for pleasure where you you forget you're an editor. Mm. You forget about modes of reading. You forget about you forget about um about meeting a book critically. You're yeah. just reading it for the enjoyment and pleasure of reading and that's the kind of reading I love the most and that's why there have been moments in my career where I think to myself do I want to do this job because mm-hmm. it takes you away from that style of reading yeah and it's interesting I mean just I mean I know being at home for instance with my parents my mother will always say I bet you're seeing things in there that I would never see and I'm like no because I'm, I'm not I'm not coming to it like that you know I'm not coming to it as a Microsoft Word document mm. or a printed off page that is asking me to interact with it in that way I'm actually going back to how I've always read. You're you're coming to it as a reader, um, Mm. and that's a a category difference from coming to it as a reader hyphen editor. So what I what I find is that a lot of contemporary fiction that I read, I'm constantly toggling between editor slash reader, even if I'm reading it for pleasure. So I did this with the Sally Rooney's. I was thinking, okay, this is great. I would have changed that. Yeah. Um, And it's a rarity for contemporary fiction that I, I I can turn that button off. Um, which is why often I tend to read kind of 20th century and back um, because it's easier for me just to read it as a reader. That being said, I sat down and read Vialina Ferrantes as a reader. I, I was there. I was unconscious half the time of what I was picking up off the page. It just kind of it happens in your gut and your head. And that, for me, is the sign of the best possible book for me. So mm. I guess, yeah, you know, I mean... Shit, yeah. Who wouldn't who wouldn't want to publish Elena Frante in part because it can probably pay our wages for the next eternity, <laughs> but also because it, it was a, a real novel for me that I, I loved as a reader. And thank you for listening. Join me next week when my guest will be Hannah Westland, publisher at Serpent's Tale, another one of the most exciting literary fiction lists in the UK. We'll be talking about books like Washington Black by Essie Idudjan, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and the absolute phenomenon that was Sarah Perry's The Essex Serpent. If you'd like to stay in touch with the show, you can find me on Twitter or at whateditorswantpod at gmail.com. Thank you.